Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. For Sunday, August the 7th, this is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Scottsdale, Arizona. Welcome to the show, Kim Hopkins. Hi, Victor. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Now, Kim, you have a little bit of an unusual career path into the world of real estate investing. There's no one way to do this, of course. And I'd love to get your backstory. And I also want to hear about your specific niche or niche, depending on how you like to say it, in industrial. So let's start with your backstory. Sure, Victor. Well, you could say that the path I took here was several left turns, but it did get me to real estate in the end, which is exactly where I want to be. I actually started out in academia. I went to school not knowing what I wanted to do. I always said fashion ain't my passion. And I know I wanted to build something original, but I wasn't sure what that was. So I ended up building math theorems, actually. And one thing led to another. And I ended up getting a PhD in mathematics from the University of Texas at Austin. Shortly after that, I realized that I didn't want to be in academia. I wanted to work on interesting problems that helped people. So I went on a massive job hunt and ended up at a startup that did tax credits. The only thing I can think of that might be less sexy than mathematics, but I did tax credits and ended up in sales. And then around 2014, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, And after reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I looked at my husband, Ben, and I said, this is what we should do. This is perfect for us. We love building things. We want to build a business and we want to work with the people we want when we want on the projects we want to do. And so that's what we did. We started in 2014. We had a five-year plan. And uh, as Trump would say, we finished on time and under budget, quit our jobs by the end of 2018. And here we are now still doing real estate. Fabulous. Fabulous. Now, what's interesting about that background, of course, is that you're fairly analytical. And so running the numbers is pretty straightforward. It's not very complicated math compared to what you're used to doing in the world of academics. And that's made you have a fairly disciplined approach in terms of investing. Yes, that's right. In fact, if you go to our website, ironpeakproperties.com, you'll see that uh, one of our favorite quotes from our first agent we did a deal with was, I've never seen anyone analyze a deal like you do. And that was not a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) We like to dig into the numbers and pull apart all the numbers. So that's something we really pride ourselves on, our underwriting. I've, I've done multiple deals where my underwriting for the first year pro forma was off by maybe 800 bucks from actuals. Wow. So, so that is that is a strong suit. That's something that I think has given us a little bit of a competitive advantage. Fabulous. Now you're invested in the world of industrial, but industrial is a big space. It can span everything from manufacturing to warehousing to uh, sale leasebacks of manufacturing. There's so many different strategies. And I know you've carved out a particular narrow slice of that asset class uh, very deliberately. Tell us about that. Yes. So um, we knew that we wanted multiple tenants because we do use leverage and we wanted the security that if one tenant left, you wouldn't be underwater on your loan. Right. Uh, So that, so we definitely wanted multiple tenants. On the other hand, we, A, really wanted to work with businesses. If if you ask me my bigger why, I love helping businesses succeed. And we also didn't really want to fix toilets in the middle of the night or get phone calls to fix toilets in the middle of the night. So multifamily, we kind of said, is there something else like multifamily, but instead of um, residential tenants, could we have businesses? And so we went into the 
area that at the time was not well known and now is very popular of multi-tenant industrial. So we have that diversification of the tenant base, but we have businesses as clients. And then we also prefer it compared to office because there's less TI, there's less tenant improvements for each tenant. Each tenant is very basic, just an office and a warehouse, small office one bathroom, and it's very versatile. We have CrossFit gyms, which I'm a big fan of. It's a cult. You should join. Uh, We have painters, contractors, all different kinds of businesses. So it has that that use of industrial, but with a retail crossover. So a lot of tenants are willing to pay higher prices because they use it more as a retail space. That's fascinating. So you would get a very wide spectrum, maybe even microbreweries and and plumbers and landscaping companies, all those types of businesses that need a a drive-in bay to store materials, a small office, uh, and these are this is small business America. Exactly, and actually, we have tenants of exact each kind you just listed. We're going through an economic cycle. You've been at this business now a few years. You've probably seen some businesses fail over that time period. What what's that been like? Has have you experienced a lot of commercial business failures? Because businesses do fail. Yes. So actually in, in 2020, during during the COVID pandemonium, we were very concerned, right? Because they put a moratorium on residential, but uh, some, some states like Oregon actually had a commercial eviction moratorium as well. And so we didn't know if that's where things were headed. Uh, and so we went through all of our tenant base and marked which ones were essential and figured out if we thought any of them would have major troubles and we were preparing for the worst. And we were pleasantly surprised. Most of our tenants did perfectly fine. If they did have issues, we sent them the information for the PPP and requested proof that they had applied. And, and most of them did very well because a lot of them are in those essential businesses. So I would love to say that we you know, saw that all coming, but some of that was luck. And uh, actually, the only tenants we've had problems with in the past are the larger tenants. The tenants in the smaller base sizes, 2,000 to 5,000 square feet, do pretty well. And if they don't, they're very easy to backfill. But the larger tenants, like the 10,000 square foot tenants, those have had some trouble because they're not quite at that credit level of some of the larger tenants, and they're they're too big to replace. I have a, a little math Um, model that I've tested out that works pretty well in our space, which is it takes about a month to rent per thousand square feet. So a thousand square foot tenant will take a month to replace, 2000 square feet will take two months, but a 10,000 square foot tenant can take up to a year. So those are kind of the sources of our, our headaches. But for those smaller tenants, you're in a good position. That's fascinating. Now, we also know that in the world of industrial warehousing, the segment has become dramatically overbuilt, especially over the last couple of years. The Growth in e-commerce has um, precipitated a tremendous amount of new construction. Amazon is dramatically oversupplied. Some say as much as 30 million square feet, some perhaps even more. Uh, That's a lot of square footage. Are any of your customers in that e-commerce space, maybe local logistics, or is it strictly that blue-collar trade type of business? We have a few small e-commerce companies that sell items on Amazon and things like that. But they're not really they're not really related to the big Amazon warehouses because they have their own space. If they have their own space, they're using it to sell product out of it, 
you know, if they can just sell through solely through Amazon, they'll do that instead. So I would say that at, in the beginning, like in 2014, 15, we had more e-commerce tenants, but now it's more in the service industry. And so, yeah, th- this product type, unlike the bigger box warehouses, is still in very high demand, both from a investor's perspective and from a leasing tenant perspective. We've seen in the world of retail, in particular big box retail, that a lot of those spaces are opening up. I mean, you think about a lot of those Kmart spaces that used to dot the nation, and they're very difficult to repurpose. You're not going to necessarily open a Target in the same location that a Kmart might have been, and those are big footprints. Have you seen any opportunity to repurpose some of those into multi-tenant industrial? I have not at this point. We've looked at a larger industrial building even. I mean, forget the Target and Kmart. We've just looked at a single tenant industrial building before and repurposing that into multi-tenant. For us, we found it to be cost prohibitive. We are not developers, maybe if we were doing it in-house, but it is actually quite expensive to build out the interior. Uh, And so that's why you see, A, a lot of this product type is not being built because it's hard it's it's expensive. It's cost prohibitive. The replacement value, and B, you know, a lot of people aren't doing it. So fascinating. Yeah, yeah. but with the, the Target and the Kmart, I have not I have not looked into that yet. Talk to me a little bit about financing this particular segment of the industrial asset class. Has that been difficult? Who who have you been focusing on for sources of capital, specifically lending in that space? Yeah. So first, I'll talk about what we've been doing the past few years, and then I'll talk about the conversations we've just recently had. So in the past few years, we've actually turned to working with life insurance companies. Um, Victor, have you ever done that? We have not. We have not. And we're actively considering it. It's fantastic for us, at least. We are uh, pretty much buy and hold investors. And so we were looking for something with a longer term. If you go with traditional lending for this kind of product type, A, a lot of the people who are doing multifamily don't understand multi-tenant industrial, a lot of the banking industry, even though it's you know a step even more secure than multifamily, in my opinion, because you're getting one to three leases and one to three year leases instead of one year. Um, but so we started talking to the life insurance companies and they're offering 10 to 15 year term, which we've utilized, which is pretty fantastic in this industry. Typically with banks, you'll see five to seven years. Uh, so we've been doing that with great rates as well. Um, the downside is if you're not a long-term hold investor, their prepayment penalty is quite steep. And then currently, I just had conversations with several lenders, both credit unions, banks, and the life insurance companies. So this might be a different topic, but we've heard so far that they're using the phrase flush with cash and that they are still open for business. So we're cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to continue with the same lending approach we've used in the past. We've heard the same thing as well. We've seen a number of lenders actually exit the business altogether, simply based on the uncertainty, but that's more in the private space. Hmm. We've heard that the lenders that are the commercial lenders, they're sitting on a lot of cash and they're really finding it difficult to find good assets to deploy it into. Yep, exactly. I love this perspective. I really wanted to focus on this particular segment because it's not one. it's not something we've talked about before on the show. And it's kind of a unique take on this particular approach. What kind of leverage are you typically finding in these types of assets? Or is it a fairly conservative leverage, 55, 65% loan to value? Are you going higher leverage? What What's the approach? It's funny how the times have changed. So 2014, I think, was 75% LTV. Uh, maybe 2016, we were down to 70% LTV. 
And uh, that is one thing I should have noted. Last year, I think we were at 65 to 70% LTV. And then the recent conversations with lenders, that is one thing they noted is that they might require a higher loan to value ratio than in years past. So um, I'm sorry, a lower loan to value ratio than in years past. So they said it could go as low as 55% with some of the life insurance companies, for example. Some of them, some of the banks and credit unions are still quoting 75%, uh, but that's where we're at, anywhere from 55, 60% up to 75. Well, Kim, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Oh, thank you, Victor. So um, our company is Iron Peak Properties. We own about 350,000 square feet of multi-tenant light industrial in Oregon, Washington, Utah, and Texas. And we're looking to expand in Texas, Phoenix, and Florida primarily. So we're always interested in talking to people about finding deals and partnering with them on that. And they can find us at ironpeakproperties.com, or they can also send an email to me at info at ironpeakproperties.com. Fabulous. I love what you're doing. Uh, great to reconnect again. And for listeners at home, definitely reach out to Kim at ironpeakproperties.com. The link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. 